with me today, I have Andrew Tuck, who is the magazine editor um, at the Monocle. Thank you for joining us. Um, if you could just tell us a little bit about what you do here um, and how long you've been in the role and kind of uh, the things that come along with your job title. So yeah, I've been here since uh, Monocle started, which is uh, a decade already, which has flown past uh, in no time at all. And I do the traditional job of an editor, which is you know, the commissioning and overseeing of the stories that end up in the magazine, end up in print. But like all media brands these days, we're a little bit more diverse and try to be a bit clever about what we do. So we also have uh, a radio station, we have uh, a books business, uh, we're also sending out daily emails to people, and all of that comes into that world of, of journalism that I oversee. So I can't say that I run everything every day, thank goodness, there's loads of amazing people around here. But hopefully at some point during the day or during the week my gaze falls on things to make sure that everything feels part of, of one story, of one brand. But yeah, it's everything from you know, overseeing the selection of photography or stories through to the hiring of staff. Um, so, just to build on that a little bit, um, when you're picking a story um, or when you uh, are in an editor's meeting and you get run down with some story ideas, what are the things that you look for in a certain story or in a um, kind of collection of photographs that um, you think the monocle audience will like? Yeah, so we've got a really interesting audience. I guess you know, the, the biggest number of our readers are in the US, followed by the UK followed by Canada, Australia, but we have large numbers of readers in Asia, all across Europe. So I'm looking for a story that will play out to all of those audiences in some way. That doesn't mean it has to be bland and international. Often it's the opposite. It's a really local or a really small story that will resonate with all those people. So it could be a, a business idea that we think the people around the world would be interested in following or it could be you know, an amazing civic leader that's inspiring that you should know about. So we're trying to introduce people to places and things that they should know about that may inform their lives and make them change how they do things. But I guess what makes it Monocle is you know, we want good access, we're hoping to get some kind of exclusivity on what we do. And in a world where you can kind of Google most things and find out most facts in seconds, we're deliberately trying to tell stories which are more cleverly crafted, that things you can't find just by going online. So that involves us having people on the front line, going out, being on the ground, often for days to tell a good story. And at the end, Monocle needs to do something quite special. So at the end of it, you know, even if we've taken you to tough places or we've told you complicated stories, in the end, I want it to be an inspiring magazine. So at the end, of it, I kind of want people to think, the world's an interesting place and they want to be involved in it. Absolutely. So you mentioned there um, as well in your past answers that you're a little bit of a niche organisation. Um, you've tried to be a little bit different from how most mainstream media um, is kind of developing or going forward at the moment. Um, one of the ways you've done that, and I, I first met you um, at News Rewired a couple of months ago, and you mentioned this in your talk then, that the Monocle really made a point of still producing physical copies, um, particularly with your summer edition um, magazines. Um, what benefit do you think that has on an audience? Because I, 
um, something that's been fading out of the industry, uh, particularly over the last decade when the monocle came around. Um, it's become more online, more blogs, things like that. So what drew you to producing a physical copy of the magazine? Okay, so there's, there's lots of even, even in, <laughs> in here. Um, Actually, before I ask you, can I just say one tiny thing? Yeah. You need to be able to say monocle, not the monocle, because we just call it monocle, not okay. the monocle. And we, and we can correct it in the intro, but otherwise the other one's okay. So let me dive in. Okay, um, okay there's, there's, there's quite a lot to dive into here. Yeah. So, first of all, we don't believe what everyone else says. And two, you're right, we're niche in the sense that we're small. We're 100 and something people, and we are selling roughly 82, 83,000 copies every single month. Now, we're not going to be able to compete with the likes of a Facebook or a Google in what they do, and we don't want to. So they have their world and we have our world. Here in the UK, online advertising, 70% of it goes to those two brands, to Facebook and Google. So we're never going to be able to suck into our digital world the kind of resources we need to do amazing journalism. So we have to look for a different model. Now, for us, and I'm not saying this is correct for anybody else, but for us, we recognise there was a place for doing high quality print, so using amazing paper, you know, using the best journalists, getting great photographers, and that then you'd get people to pay a little bit more for the magazine, and also as an environment where advertisers would want to come in and spend their money, it would also be appealing. Now, many people, when they get to this point in the conversation, they tend to forget that in the end, there is no magazine and there is no no media company without commercial backers. And so we have to attract those people into our world as well. So we, we went against the tides. We were, how about we make something that is tactile, glorious to look at, and then will it find an audience? And we've just posted um, uh, circulation figures uh, again uh, this week. And yet again, without any cheating or fiddling as other brands do, there's a, another uptick in the number of people who are buying the magazine on newsstand. And you're right, there's been a lot of discussion about you know, what the future is of newsprint, what the future is of magazines. But I think there's a little bit of a, a fork in the road where some people are beginning to find success through all different ways, whether that's you know, a New York Times or a Washington Post because they have uh, you know, become global uh, media brands, whether it's smaller players like ourselves with a, a different lineup. But I would say that it's going to be even more interesting over the coming months and years because I think there's going to be lots of people realising that they abandoned print uh, in error and that actually you can still make money from good old-fashioned paper. And I think a lot of uh, media organisations got scared of... Um, well, when Twitter and Facebook really became a big thing and a lot of the news and a lot of the media content was coming down that time feed... Um, that you kind of scroll through every day. Um, but I, th I saw a recent headline, maybe a couple of weeks back, that actually mentioned that um, the general public on a whole, uh, after a poll, were more inclined to be, or to go back to the um, kind of original sources of their news and media content instead of using Twitter or Facebook. So um, I think it, it's more of an issue than people seem to think it is. I think a lot of uh, people see, seem to think it's cut and dry, that the industry is going to go completely online um, and leave all the uh, physical... Yeah, you're making a really good, good point, because what I think is, is you know, I, even like five, six, seven years ago, there was a feeling that 
the, the audience would be all one thing or the other. There would be a purely digital, crazy audience, or there would be 90-year-olds reading books. Mm. Now, you've arrived here today, I see you've got a book in hand that you've put down at the desk <laughs> you've been reading on the train, I presume, on the way yeah. here. Now, when I go around the, the office here and talk to people, you know, there's plenty of people here who are in their 20s who are... There are plenty of people here who are in their twenties who are you know, cool young kids living life in London and they are very, very digitally aware and they are looking at news uh, on their iPhone for example. But actually those same people are also reading a book or those same people are also got a record collection or those same people are going to see live music. Now, it turns out that all those things you can get in a, in a digital way, but actually people like going to concerts. People like going to a coffee shop and seeing who makes their coffee. People want tactile, real experiences just as much as they want the digital world. So it's a much more interesting and complicated reader that's come through who will sometimes pick things up in print and sometimes will say, OK, this is an experience I want only to have on my phone. Definitely. Uh, just uh in case you uh, got thrown off by the interruption, Andrew's just bought a lovely coffee <laughs> <laughs> mid-podcast, so that's absolutely fine. Uh, so um, continuing on that theme, kind of uh, what different things or what things can you do differently um, because you have that physical form and because you have their semi-regular magazines going out instead of an organisation that says it's completely online um, and doesn't have them avenues um, to kind of distribute their news? What, other th- what different things and what alternative things can you do? Well, what's, what's interesting, I think, first of all, is, is the tone in which you deliver things. So for us, we're trying to get an, an audience who they probably need to kind of sit down for 10 minutes to read the magazine. They need to be you know, sitting on their sofa of a Saturday afternoon or they need to be on a train. They need to focus on us a little bit. And then we don't feel that we need to tell them everything in 140 characters. We don't feel that everything has to be a picture of a cat doing something crazy to get their attention. That we can give them things that are long form, more in depth, more analytical, and a little bit slower in their approach. So we do do lots of digital things. Our our radio station is uh, a pure internet radio station and every single show, like your podcast, goes out on iTunes. And we're, you know, we like that world and we make the most of it. But when it comes to print, it allows us to tell a more reflective story. And I think, again, you get this impression that nobody has an intention span anymore and that everything has to be done super fast. But then how do you explain the success of the new documentary makers where they're telling stories across hours? Uh, there was an amazing O.J. Simpson documentary, obviously, recently, which was told across... I think it was like 16, 17 hours. Yeah. Now, the audience there wasn't old people. That was aimed at a young audience. And people do have an attention span. So we're, trying to, we're just trying to be on a, a little bit of a, a different scale in how we do things. And if you think of it, that, that range of your day through high speed to slow, we, we'd rather be in the bit where you're, you're easing down and you're thinking about reading something. Absolutely. Well, uh, my next question was... Uh or some of the pros and cons of a saturated industry, because over the last year, uh, or decade, like I was saying, there's, a, uh, there's been a big influx of people being able to do this kind of stuff yourself, like, like I am, um, creating a website and a blog. Um, and that has made 
the industry much more saturated, but like you said, you've kind of found a way to get around that through making it more tactile, through making it more of an experience, um, rather than that 24-hour news cycle that a lot of people seem to be caught up in, which is very interesting. It's, it's nice to see that there's a different way. I think, like I said, back in um, News Rewire, it's nice to see that there is alternatives to being the first one to every single bit of breaking news. Yeah, but you know, another really good point, because what's interesting is when you think about films, a, a decade ago when we started, we, you know, we have a film team here, and we posted films on our website, and people came and watched them on our website. Well, even now, we, we've started to put things on YouTube, which we didn't originally do. Is it any benefit to us? No, you can go and watch the films, and maybe you see a little bit about our brand. But the person who's making the revenue around that with advertising is YouTube, it's, it's, it's not me. Yeah. And the fact is that when we first started 10 years ago, you know, even this, the size of the camera kit that we were carrying, carrying a decade ago to now has shrunk to nothing and so is the cost. So you're right, almost anybody can go out and make a nice looking film now. So what do we need to do? What do all media brands need to do? They need to think, okay, what's our voice? What's, what's really, really the story that we want to tell? They need to be ever more hyper-focused. And actually, most people have slipped into this world of doing you know, 90-second shareable films, heavily captioned so that you can just read the content right and you don't have to have the volume up on your phone on a tube, for example. But actually, maybe our job is to go in the other direction. Maybe we should be looking at what the documentary makers are doing and going back into long form. So you're right. You can arrive and make a beautifully crafted podcast so then we have to up our game and think, okay, what do we want to tell that's different to other people? But it's not all bad. I think it's amazing that you can make a podcast. I think it's amazing that all sorts of people have managed to make uh, audio shows and to get into the media world without being dependent on big brands. But it's just when you get there, what have you got to say? And that's the most important thing. Whoever you are, whether it's you or us, we all just need to be very sure about our voice. Absolutely. Well, I think there's a, there's a real issue with a lot of people um, being unwilling to take that chance because they see the market is, like I said earlier, a little bit saturated. Um, but personally, how I look at it, I always think there's over 7 billion people in the world. You don't need to capture... 90% of those people to be successful. Yeah, and also because, you know, the, 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 unfortunately, the headlines uh, in that DIY world of media go to one or two kind of, you know, vloggers or, you know, people who are just kind of posting stories about the new lipstick. And you get very disheartened when you see they have millions and millions and millions of viewers. But actually, you can create an audience for something more specialist that's, that's deep and meaningful and properly connected to what you believe around all sorts of subjects. And you know, I'm sure that many of those people writing about lipstick have more clicks than we do in a day. But again, that isn't the numbers game that we're playing. We're, we're trying to make a proper community around a sense of shared values and belief and ambition and wanting the world to kind of nudge in a certain direction. So um, you were saying earlier a little bit um, about how you are quite uh, digitally in tune as well as being uh, or producing that physical aspect of uh, Monocle magazine. Um, so my ne one of my next questions was, uh, how is the t advances in technology, um, such as kind of VR, 360 film, um, 3D interactive documentaries, etc. Um, how have you 
try to incorporate those? Have you tried to incorporate that kind of technology? Um, has it changed how you go about telling this story? Um, for example, if you've got an investigative report about Theresa May, for example, would you consider making that a VR piece or an interactive documentary? Um, so what are some of the things that have come along with the advances in technology since you started? Um, well, first of all, we, uh, no, we wouldn't think about doing it in VR. There's lots of people who are in that world and who would do it better than us. Yeah, yeah, maybe if I was Wired magazine, I'd think that sat with my brand very well. So if I think of you know, the Monocle Reader, they are probably working in an industry where they have a, a laptop open most of the day, where they're on the phone most of the day. And I come back to this tactile experience, or this, even in the digital world, how can we do things which are super simple, stripped back to the storytelling, and that is the world that we would feel more comfortable in. So in the world of film, we're thinking more about long form and a narrative these days rather than trying to do things which are complicated and uh, have bells and whistles on. Yeah, of course some of those things are great. And again, I'm not saying that you would only like one thing or the other, but for us, that's not important. For us, what we're looking at more now is around the, the technology, but also the sites that allow you to deliver content in more interesting ways. So the magazine is always going to be the, the heart of everything we do, but with our, our radio shows, we've had lots of different approaches, even in recent weeks from companies who are offering us new ways of getting content out to people. So it's, it's more in the delivery world of technology that I'm interested rather than in how we would use it, for example, in film. Okay, so it's not necessarily chasing trends. It's mm, not at all. And, 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 and listen, you know, what you're doing is what we like. So you, you've come here, we're having a, a piece, I'm um, having a conversation uh, for a podcast, mm. and there's uh, an intimacy about radio that sits nicely with our brand. So yeah. again, you, you're not having to do anything complicated here. Your success in this interview, hopefully, is down to whether, whether we, we kind of get on and whether we uh, have a, a good conversation. But then when someone else listens to it, they have this moment where their, you know, their headphone is in their ear and they're in a private world listening to this. And it's, it's thoughtful and it's deep and yeah. hopefully it's deep. I'm not sure how deep are the things I'm saying. But anyway, uh, but hopefully it's, it's an intimate moment. And that is the moment we're trying to get in with Monocle. So when people listen to the radio you know, they hear our editors and our journalists talking to them and that's much more special for us than them seeing those views distilled as a, as twitter for example well i was having a, a conversation um, with one of my friends a, a couple of days ago and we were just talking about the um ability to have a in-depth conversation um, and I was saying a lot of people these days, or a lot of even industries these days, seem to focus on the masses. They want to reach the masses um, and engage with them that way. Um, but a lot of what I've found just by having conversations with people or listening to podcasts, um, a lot of the meaningful and some of the best conversations you have are actually one-to-one -one or in smaller groups instead of talking to, trying to speak to 500, 1,000 people at once. Um, so I think that kind of stripped back intimate nature of either a written article which is long form and goes into lots of detail or a podcast or it's just a few people. I think that um, kind of content has a lot of value in the Yeah, and, I, and so not just us, but I think all media brands are looking at how do you 
conveying your audience around the journalism that you do. So you'll find that m most newspapers and magazines now have an, an events business or, or some outreach to their readers. Mm. And I guess across the year we do maybe 60 events. We do a, a big conference every year. Um, we're doing a, a mini uh, media conference here in London. Now that's a chance for us to say to our readers and our listeners, you know, we'd like to see you. Come and, come and join us for an afternoon. Come and have a drink with us. And we always joke that that's proper social media. That's the kind of social media where you get to meet someone face to face and you have a conversation. And again, it's, it's good for you know, finding out stories and looking after your readers. But it's also the sense of how do you, a club is a bit overused well, but how, how do you make people around your brand feel some sense of ownership of it? Yeah. And that's by being welcoming and that's by encouraging people to kind of, you know, come in a room with you, have a drink, have a conversation, come and see an event, come and see a talk, come and see the radio live, all things that we do just to make people feel that this is, is their company. So how many um, of those kind of conferences would you say you do in a year? So, yeah, that's, as, as I was just saying, roughly 60 things across a year. But that is, you know, so if we have a, a team on the road and we happen to be at someone else's event, for example, I don't know, in San Francisco or something, we might just say, let's, let's invite all of the subscribers and we'll take over a bar for the evening and do drinks, something as basic as that, to we would do the radio shows live in different markets during key events for the brand during the year. So at some conferences and things, we do a pop-up radio station. But then we do this one major conference every that runs over a weekend. And then last year, we started a, a mini media summit, which, touching on many things we're talking about today, it just tries to change the conversation a little bit. So it does talk about digital, it does talk about profitability in digital, but actually, it puts the spotlight on people who are, who are being very successful in this media market without having to follow the herd. Absolutely. Well, that's uh, that is something very interesting. I think it will probably, as well, like I said, add a lot of value um, to the connection between the, the organisation and the readers. Um, so just changing up a bit, uh, Donald Trump has been in the news lots and lots. Uh, fake news this, that and the other. He uh, created an award show, supposedly, um, regarding the fake news industries or the people responsible for it, which is basically just a list on a public website. Um, but his kind of, his vocalness of, of fake news has really drawn attention to um, issues within the industry. Uh, and it really spotlights how important it is to be or to have accurate journalistic stories. Um, so, what are some of the or what are some of the hardships you've had in terms of, or have you had any of people, um, some maybe subscribers or just um, partners being worried about um, the ethical implications of some of your stories and how you assure them that they are factually correct and things like that. Um, yeah, I don't think that we've really been too caught up in that debate so you know and uh, I don't think he's wrong to say that you know the media needs to be very careful about the accuracy of what it says and does um, and you know, you, is, that's not a new phenomenon if you look at what some of the tabloid press used to report here 10 20 30 years ago yeah, lots of it was just kind of made up celebrity gossip nonsense mm -hmm. that had no factual basis whatsoever so 
that sense of us allowing our news to become a little bit fake, uh, people have turned a blind eye to it in the celebrity pages, and then in some instances, maybe it did creep into the more news pages. So I'm trying to think of a more contentious issue. So a good example is whenever you do, for example, uh, a report about uh, an issues, for example, about Israel or with um, a Palestinian angle, mm -hmm. It's a hugely contentious issue. So, first of all, you have to be scrupulous to check your facts and, and make sure you're correct. But even what you call people and how you call the land and the, and how you know, is it a territory? Is it a country? Is it an authority? Is it a you know, government? All these words you have to be so careful because you will antagonise somebody on one side of the argument every single time. Yeah. So for some people, they don't wish to see either side even reported on. So we do cover those stories, and they can be issues for us. Now, we had a, a cover many years ago, which happened to have on, on, on the cover. It was, it was a story about organizations that you call in an emergency. Now, one of the organizations that we covered was an Israeli organization, which is incredibly good at, after an earthquake, finding people whose bodies or who are still alive but buried in the rubble and they did that and their skill set came about partly through war that they had been so good at looking for people in bombed buildings now where they are in the world it's quite likely that if there is an earthquake the Israelis will say we'll send a team we shot the, the team they ended up on the cover now in some Arabic countries when they realized there was an Israeli on the cover who had come from an organization that had a military connection they took the magazine off sale now it's an interesting question so do you then not put uh, Israelis on your cover because then you're being censored by yourselves almost you're, you're, you're fearing so we've, we've never had that conversation we're like okay we'll lose some readers but we did the right thing or we, we lost uh, some circulation but we did the right thing and it makes you very aware when you're running stories that are about contentious places that you need to be, you know, be very wary. But on the whole, I don't think that many people come back to us to say, um, I disagree with the facts, but often it's perspective. So even Donald Trump's a good example. Now, our audience, I think, is probably 99.9% uh, centrist, liberal, uh, the kind of people that normally would not vote for Donald Trump mm -hmm. but interestingly even there when you're very critical of Donald Trump some Americans have taken it readers have been say, said look uh, I don't like your coverage because he is our president in the end and we are Americans and we have to kind of get on with it yeah. so even there when people don't like the man being criticized once you're critical then there will be people who are opposed to what you're saying. So you just have to be very confident that you have said something that you can justify and support and you, and you really believe in. So it's important as the editor, when those pages are rushing past you, you, you get a sixth sense that, okay, this is something I really need to make sure that we go back over this one more time to make sure that we have everything right. Okay. Um, so just sticking with Trump a little bit, but I'm, I'm not necessarily talking about him directly. Um, so it was it was reported um, that Trump's campaign targeted specific um, individual communities with Facebook and Google ads like many media organizations will um, just with promoting their stuff. 
I understand you don't use Facebook or Google that much, if at all. So this will differ a little bit in your answer. Um, but when you say you present a, a new story on Palestine and it's a very, say, or not very, say it's a slightly anti-Israeli leaning, leaning piece. Uh, yeah, so uh, just to jump in, I don't think it'd be anti-Israeli. I think it's just the very nature of covering yeah. Palestine. For, for, for some Israelis, they would rather you didn't cover the story. Yeah, so if it's, uh, even if it's seen that way, let's say, um, do you find or do you think that you have a ethical responsibility to then write a piece on the contrary? Um, do you think you have a, a some kind of responsibility to avoid your readers to fall into the trap of confirmation bias? Um, is that something you deal with in your editorial meetings? Um, or is that something that you kind of have, don't think about too much when you're producing your magazine? So our radio station, for example, is an internet-based radio station. I'm not covered by British broadcasting uh, rules, or the majority of them. Yeah. Uh, our magazine is aimed at a very clear audience. Uh, I have, I have no worry about on a day to day basis. Am I being exactly equal to both sides of a story? Mm-hmm. My concern is to tell what I think is a viewpoint that that chimes with the majority of our readers. So, no, I I, I don't particularly have to worry about that. We're not normally in that hugely contentious space. But oddly, I, you know, the, the BBC, for example, here in the UK, sometimes when it's it's okay, let's hear two minutes from person on this side, now let's hear two minutes from that person on the other side, and it kind of counts, it leaves you with kind of feeling of, um, I, well, I don't know. Yeah. And for us, you know, we've got clear opinions, and we want to express them, whether it's about you know, urbanism, how to run a company, um, what makes uh, good architecture, we've got a viewpoint, and we will argue that, and I don't feel the need to end up in a wishy-washy place where I'm kind of then countering my own arguments. But, you know, uh, I think you do have to be careful not to cut people out of a conversation because you don't like their voice. And certainly I think sometimes, especially on the more on the radio than in print, where we have less space uh, and fewer stories can be told in print every month than on radio. But on radio, we would have people come in to give an opposing view and to be a little bit more challenging to our own audience about what they think. And that's good for all of us. You know, it, it's, we don't want to end up in a position where our views go unchallenged. Because as you say, you end up in this, this world where you know, suddenly you're surprised that Donald Trump is elected or suddenly you're surprised that Brexit's happened. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, uh, I think that is something that's really, um, well, been in the news per se, but hasn't directly been in the news where um, organisations are writing headlines about it. But it is something that I think uh, is an issue for particularly the more mainstream news agencies like the BBC you mentioned. Yeah, uh, and I, I, but I, but I, I think that. people are, are, yeah, I think, again, you know, no one wants to say that, um, not many, many people who I know want to say Donald Trump's done a good thing. But, you know, he did do a pretty good thing in the sense of making people aware of that. And it's interesting now that, you know, I think the New York Times took it to heart and thought, you know what, maybe we haven't reported enough from the places in America that feel cut out from this globalised world and that we should send more journalists there. They're definitely reporting from the Rust Belt more. They're definitely going into rural communities more. And I think that's gone for much of the best of US media. 
they have been forced to be a bit more reflective and think, okay, how do we tell a, a, a more diverse story on our pages? Because it's of interest to all of their readers, but they just weren't often present in those places. So that's, you know, and that's, that's good for us as well. So, you know, we, need, we need to be able to keep our readers informed. And if we're ignoring stories or trends that are uncomfortable to them, then that's an error. Well, definitely. I think um, hard-hitting stories are particularly... Well, they're, for me, personally, they're more engaging, um, for one. If I'm reading something that makes me slightly more uncomfortable, I think that's it's better for your own development, in a way, yeah. strangely. It makes you think more kind of comprehensively. Um, so, over the course of this podcast, we have talked quite a lot about the industry. Um, so, you understand you've worked as a magazine editor for quite some time now. Um, where do you see the industry heading in the, say, next five years? Um, and for some people who are, like myself, just recently getting into the industry, um, what past do you think a newer crop of uh, journalists, filmmakers, photographers um, kind of fitting into the industry? Uh, so I can't talk about every single sector mm-hmm. of, of the industry, but these are not all bad times. When you look at the... The film industry and uh, movies and documentaries, all that world for people who can use a camera is is still growth and interesting and fascinating. When you look at the books industry, you know, it was hit by the likes of the Kindle, but now numbers have bounced back back in many sectors, and there are many vibrant small book publishers. When you look at the the, the news trade, many news brands you know, stuttered and some fell. But then you look at, there's some really interesting powerhouses now who have found a business model for success and have gone back to doing what they do, which is telling good stories. I think like any brand, so here you'll find a journalist who is working on a book, who's working on a film, who's uh, making a podcast across the week, doing all of those things kind of seamlessly. And I think that many people will find their way into the industry by being open to being multi-talented and in a way that wasn't uh, even expected uh, a decade ago. But I think when it comes down to it, whether you're going to be telling those stories you know, uh, online or on film or on page, there's a, a, a thing that makes a journalist, which is you know, a, a kind of a a determination, a, a kind of an itch to find things out, a, an ability to talk to people and get a story. Now, I, I'm sure it's been the same for a journalist in every single generation, that if you have been stung by that and if you feel that, then there's um, then there's going to be a place for you. We see it here often, you know, people come through and they're kind of a bit vague about what they want to do their life and maybe they're going to be a journalist or maybe they're going to do something else. But then someone comes through who's like, do you know what, this is the only thing I'm going to do and I, and I think I'm good at it. And I and you, you, you see it in the way that they gather information. And those people will always find a home. The person who can track down a proper good story. I think when we were at that conference, it came up this notion of content. And this is the thing that worries me a little bit about many of the jobs that people get pushed into these days are it is content production, which seems little more than, uh, I don't know, it, it, it's, it's just filling in a sandwich. Now, in the end, that content needs to be about stories, it needs to be about breaking news, and, and, and it doesn't always have to be, that doesn't mean you have to kind of be 
Ben Bradley and you know, working in the Washington Post in the 60s, whatever. It, it means that whether you're doing a piece of consumer journalism or whether you're interviewing someone, that you're just able to kind of get a story. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you very much. And then, Andrew, um, I think we'll wrap it up for now. Um, but it was very nice having you on the podcast. I'm sure everyone will enjoy your, your thoughts on the industry. Um, but once again, thank you for inviting me here to one at Dorset Street. Thank you very much, Luke.